1: That strides forward. Forward. forward, This is Strides Forward, the podcast of stories about women and running, told one woman at a time. My name is Cherie Louise Turner, and I am your host and producer. You're listening to Episode 3 of our inaugural season, and the theme of this season is experiences in and around the oldest and largest ultra-distance foot race in the world, the Comrades Marathon. In this episode, we'll hear about persistence and following big dreams from a woman with a lot of experience running far and running fast.
0: Uh, Yeah, so I'm Camille Heron. I am originally from War Acres, Oklahoma. Uh, We're actually living in Alamosa, Colorado right now because we bought a house up in Colorado. And I started running officially in the seventh grade in 1995.
1: Camille Heron is a well-recognized elite runner these days in the ultra-world. She's set world and national records and won national and world championships. In this story, however, the focus is on a time when Camille was just beginning to realize her ultra-talents. Comrades plays a central role in this journey, going way back to her childhood in Oklahoma. But before we get to Camille's story, there are a few things to know about the Comrades Marathon. It's a 90-kilometer or roughly 56-mile race. Comrades turns 100 years old in 2021, and over 27,000 runners have registered for the 2020 event. The Comrades course goes between the coastal city of Durban and the smaller town of Pietermaritzburg in the hills. Each year, the race switches directions making for up years when it finishes in Peter Pietermaritzburg, because there's a lot of climbing in that direction, and down years when it finishes in Durban, because all the uphill running in the uprun becomes downhill running in the downrun. The Comrades in 2017, the race I'll talk about in this episode, was an up year. And while Comrades is called a marathon, in almost all cases when someone is referring to a marathon— They're talking about an event that's 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers long. Anything longer than that is considered an ultra marathon or an ultra. The Comrades Marathon is an exception in this regard. And as I did up top, you'll often hear me refer to Comrades as an ultra. In each episode, in addition to telling one runner's story, I'll interweave information about the race, its history, and its many traditions. For this episode, I'll cover the finish line traditions and the various medals that runners earn because the finish line, it plays a significant role in Camille's story. But for now, we're headed back to beginnings.
0: Yeah, I uh, ran my first competitive race in the seventh grade, and yeah, I just found my calling in life because I'd grown up as a basketball player and played a lot of sports. But uh, running was a pretty natural sport for me. I'm really, I'm pretty tall with uh, long legs and arms, and uh, (laughs) I always had a lot of endurance as a kid. So um, yeah, it was just a very natural sporty sport for me, and I just loved how my body felt uh, running over, uh, especially I really liked cross country more than I did track. And I just loved how my body felt running over hills in the natural terrain.
1: Camille's interest in running was noticeable and encouraged by her family.
0: So my first running book in the seventh grade was Lore of Running by Timothy Noakes. And so I got to give credit to my dad for getting me the the best possible running book he could because uh, Dr. Noakes talks all about comrades in that book. And so it was really hard at the time for me to wrap my head around someone uh, running 55 miles. Just being a young girl in Oklahoma, I mean, it just sounded so like... It just sounded like larger than life type of thing. I mean, to be able to go to Africa and uh, race in South Africa and to run that far. I mean, in, in my mind as a young girl, I you know, I just wondered, you know, well, how do they keep going like that? You know, how are they feeling? And, and so the stars aligned that, you know, here I had this seed planted in my head that, hey, this is
1: the ultra you need to run. Camille tucked away those ultra-distance dreams throughout high school and college and followed what she describes as a traditional path for a runner. She ran cross-country and track, and then began to focus on the marathon after college. This was a distance she excelled at for years. She earned her way to three Olympic trials marathons in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and a ninth place in the event in the 2011 Pan American Games. But Camille wasn't satisfied focusing exclusively on singular high-profile marathons. She experimented with back-to-back marathons and eventually turned to ultras, which is how she came to set her sights on two oceans, a 56-kilometer or just under 35-mile road race that also takes place in South Africa. The appeal was that it's longer than a marathon, but not as far as comrades. So it was a good step up, but not too big of a step up. Two Oceans and Comrades are largely considered two of the most prestigious and competitive road ultras in the world.
0: So I ended up running Two Oceans, um, was my first ultra in 2013, and it didn't go quite as well as I thought. I mean, I had been, I think the previous year I'd run like a 237 marathon, so I was in pretty good shape. But um, I basically ended up finishing 11th and eventually got bumped up to 10th due to a woman who, uh, the woman who won was caught doping. I was actually pretty timid my first couple of attempts at ultras, um, I just didn't know how to push myself. I mean, it, it's scary. It's scary going so much further than you ever have. So yeah, my, my first uh, ultra two oceans, uh, I was pretty disappointed with it.
1: Of course, 10th place, even 11th, is a great achievement at such a hard competitive race. But Camille, her goals were to be the champion, the very best. And she wasn't nearly ready to give up on that. So she forged ahead with bigger plans. She decided to go after the dream that had been planted way back in her childhood.
0: And then I went and ran Comrades in uh, 2014, and I had a stomach virus. I shouldn't have run the race, but here, having flown halfway across the world and uh, only to get sick the day before the race, um, you know, I I felt like determined to do it anyways. So yeah, I made it 83 kilometers for that race, and uh, and then I passed out and ended up in the ER with a concussion and uh, really bad GI issues and. Yeah. So my my first my first two ultras did not go quite as well as I'd
1: hoped. It would have been reasonable for any runner looking for a breakout moment in ultras to feel defeated after one disappointing finish and then a trip to the ER, or you could turn to the strength of never say die heroes. However unlikely those heroes might be for an ultra runner.
0: I grew up watching all the Rocky movies and I hearing I the Tiger and um. Yeah, I mean that that was just always empowering to me as a kid to to imagine myself as, you know, a real life version of Rocky, uh, a female Rocky. To me it's always been important to have heroes and to have, you know, inspiration and um a huge part of what I do is training my mind and, you know, having a mental vision of who I am and what I'm going to do. And so, so yeah, I think of my heroes and uh, those things that inspire me. And um, yeah, I was, uh, (laughs) I was very inspired by Rocky growing
1: up. And you could call on your well-honed skills of knowing how to give a peak performance.
0: I grew up as a stage performer, so I grew up doing dance and piano and um, band, and, and I was a good basketball player. I grew up, my dad taught me how to be a good free throw shooter, so I've always considered myself a championship performer. So, so for me, I've always envisioned myself as um, when I toe the line, I'm like a boxer in the corner of a ring uh, doing the shakedown. So there's actually video footage of me dancing on the starting line. And, um, you know, that's something I've been doing since I was in high school, uh, envisioning myself, you know, about to throw uh, 12 rounds of punches like a boxer. For me, I call it flipping the switch. Everybody has their own like little warm-up routine, but for me that's what makes me relaxed and comfortable.
1: You could also make sure your mental game clears the path for greatness. Mentally,
0: I prepare myself in training, um, I tell myself to to let the magic come out. And so I feel like when you get those opportunities like that, um, you know, you think about how hard you worked and you think about, you know, that you want to prove yourself and that you deserve to succeed. And so for me, I'm telling myself, you know, I'm born to run. I'm born
1: to do ultras. And then you make sure to keep showing up. You persist.
0: I recommitted myself in 2015 that I I just felt like I had this it was just this feeling I had inside that I was meant to be an ultra runner. So when I ran my first 100K in, um, in 2015, um, I ended up winning the national title at Mad City.
1: At that national championship, Camille didn't just win. She set a new national championship record, breaking a record that had stood for 26 years. Later that same year, she won both the 100-kilometer and the 50-kilometer world championships. In the 100-kilometer event, she ran the fourth-fastest time for a woman to ever run that distance. Camille's belief that she was born to do ultras, that is, born to be an ultra champion, it was beginning to become her reality. Bolstered by the real-life experience that she could compete at the highest level in ultras— Camille reset her sights on Comrades with one goal in mind. So, yeah, I
0: didn't get to make it back and redeem myself until 2017. And I went, I went into it thinking, you know, by golly, you know, I want to prove myself here because I'm, I, I feel like I'm born to run ultras. And, yeah, I just, I went in with this conviction that I, I had to win.
1: But training to win races like Comrades That puts prolonged and intense demands on the body. Elite athletes aim to perform at the highest level possible, which means continually treading the very fine line between health and injury or illness.
0: My build-up to Comrades was anything but perfect. I actually, I tore my MCL in my knee uh, at a trail race 10 weeks before Comrades. And so I had a really serious knee. I mean, I could barely bear weight just walking on it. And, um, and then I basically rehabbed it, uh, and then I didn't start running again until April.
1: With comrades coming up in June, Camille worked her way back to training, but it was unclear if she'd have enough time to get in the conditioning she'd need to be able to pull out a win. For weeks, she remained uncertain as to whether or not she'd be race ready after such a setback.
0: And so, when I, when I, uh, two weeks before the race, I ended up having a workout that told me that, hey, I think I'm in pretty good shape now. And so, we we booked our plane tickets and um, ended up flying over.
1: There was one more sign, which came from her husband, Connor that gave Camille the confidence this just might be her time to shine.
0: Connor ended up having, he had a dream that I won Comrades, and they shot confetti at the finish line in his dream. And so he told me this, and this is at the time when I was trying to get back running and and trying to see if I could even train for Comrades, let alone to win it. So just because he had this dream I I had it in my mind that I was going to win <laughs> and um, that I was supposed to win. And so really it was his dream that, that gave me the the conviction and the inspiration that I was supposed to train for this and that I was going to win. And it was really a really, really hard buildup for me um, because physically and emotionally, um, I mean, I had this knee injury and it just, It seemed impossible that I was I was supposed to be there, but I just held on to this dream that Connor had.
1: Even so, the reality of what Camille would have to do to win this race was daunting. Here, Camille mentions Sage Cannaday, a top male ultra racer, who had run the Comrades, and she also mentions Strava, which is sort of like Facebook but for athletes where you can share training and racing information down to details of distance and pace.
0: Before the race, when um, I tried to get on Strava and I looked up Sage Candidate's um, pace that he ran when he ran uh, Comrades in 2015, and I couldn't wrap my head around how fast they were going climbing during the race. So I I, I was nervous. I was, I was definitely a bit nervous thinking, how in the world am I going to run that fast climbing?
1: It makes sense that Camille was a bit nervous going into race day. This is a tough course and the competition is fierce. And Camille knew she was fit, but she'd had that painful and bumpy preparation, not to mention the fatigue of traveling to South Africa and adjusting to the nine-hour time difference. So how in the world was she going to run that fast while climbing, or during the rest of the race for that matter? Turns out, she was going to do it any way she had to.
0: I felt like I prepared absolutely the best I could for it, and so it was really just knowing what I had overcome and how hard I had worked that that really helped me to get through any low moments. But yeah, I mean, like watching watching the video of Comrades, I mean, my gait doesn't look perfect. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a funny gait to begin with, but um, having hurt my knee like I did, and um, there is definitely a weakness in my right leg. And, and yeah, so I'm, I'm basically running the race with, we, we joked that I was running the race with like one and a half legs.
1: In a post-race interview with SABC-TV News, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, Camille's unconventional running style did not go unnoticed. How
0: sweet was the victory, though, Camille? I mean, every step you took as I watched I'm thinking, OK, she's falling over, she's falling over. But somehow you managed throughout. You dominated that race. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I feel that I'm a very tough person uh, mentally and physically, and so even though my, my body was, felt like it was really straining uh, on the second half, I just kept pushing as hard as I could and thinking about how hard I worked and all the, all the things I've had to overcome here the past few
1: years. While Camille's body language and form may not have made it look like she'd be able to pull out a win, her internal game plan told a whole different story as she shared in that post-race interview.
0: ...just to go for it and just, you know, run from the gun. And uh, so I kind of had that mentality that, you know, I'm just going to go for it and, and just really, you know, lay, lay it all out there. Uh, so, you know, the, the, uh, the slogan for this year was it takes all of you. And I felt like I threw my whole body and my whole heart into it. And, uh, yeah, it was very special coming into that finish. And,
1: uh, so, yes, Camille did go from the gun. She made her intentions known from the very beginning of the race by getting out in front. As she describes the race unfolding, she recalls a few women around in the first few miles. And that's it. Taking the lead so early on, it's risky and there's a lot of pressure. The stress that comes with being chased. Are you pushing the pace too much? Not enough? You don't know what your competitors may be holding back or what might happen to slow you down. It's a bold move that can have big payoffs or huge consequences. And at the front, there's a lot of distracting fanfare to contend with. Comrades is live on television for 12 hours, which means that the race leaders are running right behind a media crew. This includes a truck with a huge running clock display, several motorcycles buzzing around with camera crew on board, security detail, and directly behind the runner, there's a taller, larger truck that allows additional members of the media to watch from just behind. And there are helicopters. In addition, many male racers make a point of running with the lead female because, well, it's exciting. And the crowds go especially wild when the leader comes by, all along the course. Camille's ability to leave it all out there to focus so completely on the job at hand over the six hours and thirty-seven minutes she was out there, that didn't come by chance. She leaned on skills she'd been building since she was a kid.
0: I mean, I have a lot of experience with championship racing and stage performance, and uh, you know, being in the spotlight, you're 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 pretty much in the zone, and you're trying not to expend a lot of outside energy and let yourself like get too amped up, Uh, you're trying to keep your cool and stay calm and in the moment. And so I I had to prepare myself for that, like to know that, okay, I'm going to be I'm probably going to be leading the race, there's probably going to be a lot of hoopla around me. And I need to be able to focus on my effort, you know, and be able to push myself to the max. Um, and so I was pretty much able to tune out everything around me and, and kind of have this tunnel vision while I was racing. But also at the same time, I mean, I was able to, to use that as a positive energy to help, you know, propel and carry me.
1: Something to keep in mind here is that because elite ultra racers are teetering on that fine line of injury or illness, they have to seize the day when it's available to them, whatever happens you don't get many chances at grand achievements, and you never know when the next opportunity will arise. So Camille kept at it, leading the race kilometer after kilometer and maintaining a gap of several minutes on her nearest competitors throughout the race.
0: I did go through some low moments during the race. Like um, I know that like I've had hamstring issues, and I know my, my hammy was bothering me at one point. And my husband ended up giving me a giving me beer a couple times uh, and, um, but but yeah, I there was never a doubt in my mind that I was going to win the race, that I was supposed to win it. And so really that's what kept me going and um, knowing that I was supposed to persevere through anything to to get to the finish line first.
1: That sort of focus, that perseverance, it's really important because with such a long way to go, you never know what's going to happen. Fortunes can and do change drastically, and a convincing lead can vanish in short order. At Comrades, one point in the uprun that is particularly critical in this regard is Polly Short's, the final big climb of the race, and it comes at the 79 kilometer, or almost 50 mile mark, not far from the finish in Peter Pauly's Polly's is steep and it goes on for just over a mile or a couple kilometers. I talk about Polly's a bit more in episode one because it also played a part in Devin Yanko's time at Comrades. Polly's is that soul-searching part of the course that carves out deep memories in many runners' uprun experiences. For those who are racing, it's the final place to throw down or get passed by. When Camille came into Polly's, she did still have a gap of several minutes on second place.
0: About 10k to go, and um, I knew that if I crested the top of Polly Short's Hill, that uh, the the I guess there's stats showing that if you crest the top of Polly Short's, that uh, you're you're guaranteed to win the race.
1: But Camille still had to get up and over Polly's, and given the climb's reputation, race announcers are keen to focus on the action here.
0: 10 kilometers to go for her as we're coming to the end of his race now. She's really been leading all along. It will be so heartbreaking if she loses this one right at the end. Like If she does, cramp and loses the race right at the end. They've been led for so long.
1: But with each running stride, Camille powered closer to the top, along the way passing fellow male runners, several of whom had succumbed to bouts of walking, which isn't uncommon. As 2015 female Comrades champion Carolyn Votzman didn't hesitate to acknowledge.
0: And Carolyn Voetsman is uh, back with us, and uh, yeah, how is Camille looking at this stage? She looks like she's struggling, but you just mentioned she's not even walking. You know what? I think that Polly's is a really, really tough heel to try and tackle at this stage of the race. And she is still running up it. So as tight as what she looks, that's to be expected on Polly's. And she hasn't walked yet. Well, doesn't look as if she walked before um, I came to her. So I, if I was there, I would definitely be giving her a high five right now. Ten out of ten for effort running all the way up Polly's. I think I walked about four times up Polly's the year that I won. And so when I hit the top of Polly's shorts... Um, I knew I was going to win and I had this like amazing feeling inside like oh my gosh I'm gonna win this thing and uh, so so yeah it was pretty cool when I, I crested the top of that hill and then it's pretty much downhill from there and um, and I mean I love to watch the video of that too because I, I look like I start flying down poly shorts and uh, I mean I was just so excited because I, I just knew I, I had it in the bag.
1: But to win, there's that final detail of crossing the finish line.
0: I saw you raise your arms. I'm like, Camille, no. Carry on running. Uh, you know,
1: in, in the bag. Well, she thinks it's in the bag, but she's not at the finish yet. And uh, a bit of confusion here for Camille here, and they're just telling her, look, you've still got some way to run, and uh, she can probably
0: walk it and uh, still win this, and it looks like that's what she's decided to do.
1: Camille explains her experience in that post-race interview. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, so I, I crossed a timing mat uh, with an arch, and they handed me a rose. And, uh, you know, I thought that was the finish line. And uh, I just started, you know, stopped my watch and started slapping high fives with everybody. And uh, apparently everybody was yelling at me to keep going, keep going. <laughs> and uh, But it was so loud that I just didn't know. I, I couldn't hear what they were saying. And so, so yeah, that may have been the most frightening part of the race that I actually stopped at the wrong, wrong timing mat for about a minute and a half. But fortunately, another runner came up behind me and, yeah, and pointed that I wasn't quite there yet. So. <laughs> Very far from
1: Camille Heron. And
0: now Heron realizes that she hasn't actually quite finished the race and puts in the last little sprint finish towards the end there. And she's really going for it now.
1: And back in that post-race interview, Camille tells her side of this last-minute blitz to the line.
0: It was like I, probably the, the fastest I've ever spent the last two years of a race. So I still had something left in me to, to get there. So, so yeah, it was the, the actual finish was much, much better.
1: <laughs> Camille was able to claim her victory, becoming only the second U.S. female to do so. And about that finish line snafu... Where Camille stopped, it wasn't so crazy for her to think that that was the finish, especially considering how completely exhausted she was. There's that timing match she mentions, which runners expect to see at the finish. And she had just entered the stadium, and Comrades runners know that the finish of the race, it's in the stadium. And just before Camille stopped, she had received two of the items Comrades winners are given near the finish, a rose and a scroll. These are a couple of the many end-of-race traditions at Comrades. There's a rose given to each of the top ten finishers, male and female. The scroll, which is only given to the male and female winners, is a message of greeting and friendship exchanged between the mayors of Durban and Peter Meritzburg from year to year. In addition, top finishers receive prize money, which is and has been equal for men and women since 2001. For every runner who completes Comrades, they earn a medal. The type of medal you get depends on your finishing time. For instance, the top 10 men and women receive a gold medal. As of 2019, there's the Isabella Roche Kelly Medal, in honor of this two-time Comrades champion and the first woman to break seven hours, 30 minutes, which she did in 1980. This medal is only given to women and goes to those runners who finish under that 7.30 mark but out of the top 10. For all the racers who finish between 7.30 and nine hours, they're given the Bill Rowan medal, named after the winner of the very first Comrades. And so on, to the medal named after the man who founded Comrades, the Copper Vic Clapham medal, which is given to the runners who come in in the final hour of the race, between 11 hours and the 12-hour cutoff. Runners who don't finish within the 12 hours are not counted as comrades finishers, and so they don't receive a medal. I'm going to talk about that 12-hour cutoff in a future episode, because like the start, which I talked about in episode two, it's a well-known dramatic point of the race. And as harsh as it sounds, and really as harsh as it is, this is one of the reasons becoming a comrades finisher means so much to people. Like any sport that has its own language of honors and levels of achievement, say like the various colors of belts in martial arts, these medals, these cherished takeaways are signs to those in the know of exactly what kind of bragging rights a runner has. Getting any medal at Comrades is held in high esteem. If you tell anyone in South Africa that you've raced Comrades, there's an immediate appreciation for what that means. But there's cachet in earning a medal that shows you've finished in a faster time or in a higher place amongst your competitors. Those medals fuel hundreds, thousands of training programs and race dreams. One final note about these medals. For all the significance they hold, they're physically pretty small. They're just a bit larger than an American quarter. Now back to Camille. In amongst the rich traditions of receiving her rose, carrying the scroll, earning her gold medal, at the finish line, there was one particular experience that, for her, was almost eerily personal.
0: I mean, I think the coolest thing was... um... So for, for my husband, who was at the finish line, um, you know, I talked about he, he had this dream that I had won and that they shot confetti at the finish line. And so here I stopped at the wrong timing, Matt. And uh, there was this dramatic, you know, moment there for about a minute and a half. Uh, and then once I got going and I, I uh, ended up crossing the the real finish line. They shot confetti at the finish line and my husband my husband thought it was the coolest thing because it was exactly as his dream. And and so yeah, it was it was really cool that, you know, I, you know, I made his dream came true like that.
1: Unless Camille think her physical efforts were behind her for the day, there was one final challenge to tend to.
0: And then another funny thing about that is um they they go and hand me the caduceus which is this really heavy trophy well that thing is like 30 pounds you know here here i went through everything i went through you know running 55 miles in the heat and i won the race and they go and hand me this 30 something pound trophy and i i'm just like laughing i'm just like this is so crazy but yeah
1: i mean that there there are so many great moments taking a step back While Camille had the singular achievement of winning comrades that day, she was part of something much larger.
0: So, so comrades, I feel like comrades is a world, is a race that brings people from all over the world together, and um, it's something that I mean, I it makes me smile just thinking about it, or even when somebody tells me that you know that they ran comrades, it feels like we kind of have this shared sense of we know we know what it's about, we know that it's bringing uh, humanity together.
1: Camille had been driven by dreams and determination and bolstered by the unity and shared difficulty of Comrades. And she'd achieved a goal that at times seemed impossible. What an incredible high.
0: So to win Comrades, I mean, it was my number one life goal. And so when I won it, I was like, like, what do you do when you win, when you achieve your number one life goal? Like, you know, they they say, you know, that, that you should go out on top. And um, I mean, I was literally having thoughts about like, well, do I retire? Like, what do I do now? So I I had to start writing down more goals. And um, that's when I realized like, oh, you know, I could I still got things like world records. And um, I mean, there's so many other races out there beyond comrades. But I mean, I think that winning comrades is kind of the pinnacle of excellence. And, yeah, it gives me a sense of relief that, hey, I've already achieved my number one goal. Uh, Anything else I do from now on is just icing on the cake.
1: Race wins and world record performances, they are spectacular moments. But behind that is the daily, monthly, year-in, year-out reality of putting in the training, which gets difficult and demanding, and at times it's just painful, which leads to the reasonable question of why. Here Camille mentions Frank Shorter, a two-time Olympian for the United States in the marathon. He won gold in 1972 and silver in 76.
0: When I was in college, I met Frank Shorter at a at a marathon and he signed a poster for me that said, "Run for stress release." So, I remember like thinking very deeply about that and thinking of running as almost as like a form of meditation. It really, just changing how I think about running, it really started to impact me, and I started to really enjoy my running. I found myself running more, and that was really kind of the turning point for me, that my running started to take off. And um, so, you know, carrying that over into, you know, the marathon, into ultra running, I mean, I'm running with a smile on my face all day. I really appreciate the moment, and I, I really I love to work hard, too. I like to do workouts. I mean, I'm grimacing and smiling during workouts. I think if you enjoy running, like, just on a daily basis and, um, you know, you, you learn to appreciate how it makes you feel and, you know, it makes you happy, that that just carries over into your race performance as well.
1: And isn't that a beautiful thing about running? It's this seemingly very simple motion, but it can provide so much more.
0: I, I joke that I'm like the mouse that gets on the wheel and runs all day and like just because I feel like I'm wired to do that and I, I just like how it makes me feel and I feel like I'm born to do it and, and for me I mean it reminds me of being a kid getting out and running around the wheat fields around our house and chasing the animals and connecting with nature it feels good it's good for your health. To be able to go out and explore, uh, you know, going across mountains or being able to push the limits of uh, distance and speed. I mean, you can do anything with it, you know, whatever you set your mind to, and whatever goals you set for yourself.
1: And that concludes our story with Camille Heron. For more information about this episode and Camille or about Strides Forward, please visit stridesforwardpodcast.com. One section you'll find there provides resources related to women and running. Each episode after the story, I highlight one of those resources. This episode's highlighted resource is the Keeping Track podcast. It's hosted by former and current professional runners Alicia Montano, Roisin McGettigan, and Molly Huddle. And the trio discuss issues around women in sport with other notable female athletes and experts in the field. Their conversations are personal and powerful, and they get into tough issues that deserve more attention, like racial and gender discrimination and inequality, and drug use, that is, cheating. All of the episodes are really good listens, and I found the interview with two-time Olympic medalist Don Harper Nelson particularly memorable. I welcome you to please stay in touch. I can always be reached through the website, or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at StridesForward. Thank you to Camille Heron for sharing her story and, like all of the runners in this first series, for taking a chance on a podcast that was just a passionate idea when she granted me this interview. Thank you as well to April Mariner of Bonfire Collaborative for the logo and website design. You can find April at bonfirecollaborative.com. And thank you to Cormac O'Regan for the original music and sound design. And thank you to you, the listener. I am thrilled you're joining this podcast journey. Please subscribe and share with friends and family and leave your thoughts in a review. Until next time, this is Cherie wishing you satisfying strides forward. Whoops, that strides forward.